when you deal in situations like this, you, you're forced to recognize that we aren't really in control of anything except our own selves and how we choose to interact with the world. And that happens moment by moment. Hello, my name is Matthew Sortino and welcome to Moments of Clarity. Today I'm speaking to Lee Watanabe Crockett. Lee is an author, speaker, designer, inspirational thinker and the creative force behind some of the most exciting transformations in education happening worldwide today. He has cultivated skills in Aikido, studied tea ceremony while living in Japan and studied painting in Florence. He also studies traditional Zen Buddhist music which he performs on a shakuhachi, the Japanese bamboo flute. Lee works with governments, education systems, international agencies and corporations to help people and organisations connect to their highest purpose and realise their wish for the future. His several best-selling books, including Literacy is Not Enough, Growing Global Digital Citizens and Mindful Assessment, have garnered many awards and are used in schools and universities around the world. It was an honour to have Lee join me on the podcast. After spending an entire day learning from Lee recently on a professional development course, it would be an understatement to say I was inspired. I have had my ups and downs with education and the system in general throughout my years teaching, and to have someone encapsulate the problem so succinctly was incredible. And although he was able to diagnose the challenges, he had a strong belief in the power of educators to make the necessary changes to improve outcomes for students, teachers and schools. In today's conversation, Lee and I discuss attachment, belonging, travel, Japan, Zen Buddhism, meditation, judgment, perspective, breathing and history. If you would like to learn more from Lee, you can search Wabasabi Learning. Global Citizen Foundation, and Flame of Hope. You can also buy one of Lee's many books or watch his TEDx talk on YouTube. Thank you so much for listening to Moments of Clarity today. And now, without further delay, I bring you Lee Watanabe Crockett. Lee, welcome to Moments of Clarity. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. We were talking a little bit prior to recording just about how inspired I was to have you speak at our school. We were able to shift some of our perspectives or attempt to shift our perspectives through a conversation and hearing you speak to us. And that really inspired me as someone that thinks that the education system has a lot to learn and and has a a long way to go to be where we want it to be in society today, even though we have fantastic educators and fantastic people, that there is a long way to go with our education system. And I, I believe that you've captured or you helped to capture that So I'm really glad to be able to talk to you today. Oh, it's my great pleasure. Thank you. I'd love to start right at the beginning at the town you grew up, the small Canadian prairie town that you grew up in, what that was like. Well, that's, yeah, I I grew up in a town of um, of 4,000 people, uh, a little less than 4,000 people, actually. And and it was a farming town. So I, I really grew up. On, on, spent most of my time on a, either on a farm or in a very, very small town as a, as a child. So being from Canada and being in that kind of a, a community, uh, I actually I learned how to ride a horse before I learned how to ride a bike even. So it was, it was that kind of connection with nature and with the land in a way that a lot of people don't get to experience when you, when you live in a city. You know, growing, growing food or being around people that are growing food really shows you what... Uh, humility is like and what it's like to live a life in service of others, which is something that you do as a farmer. And so, so it was a, a small place that uh, we weren't really exposed to the world. We had uh, three television channels, uh, two and two a little bit if you managed to wiggle the, 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 the antenna the right direction. Um, and, and so it was, we, made our own, we made our own entertainment. We, 
we made entertainment by doing things. We were active. We solved problems. We fixed things. We did stuff on the land. We built things. Uh, so it was very, very active and very much about exploring the world uh, as opposed to just consuming uh, what was presented to me. Yeah, that's a really interesting point about humility and, and being from a rural place where you are connected to nature and probably realise that how small, how small humanity and, and humans are when when faced with what the world and the universe can throw at us, um, but also how connected we are too. What sort of lessons did you learn about that connection to nature that you've brought with you into your adult life? It's, uh, it's interesting, actually, that there are so many similarities between rural Canada and rural Japan, where I live now. And, and you know, my, my practice in Zen is, um, is very much related to, to what, those, what that upbringing was. Some of the things that you learn when you grow, when you grow up on a, in, a, in a place like that are just the, uh, the importance of surrender. We, when we're, when we live in a big town and we live in a big city and we're business people, you know, we, we try to control everything. And as teachers, we try to control everything. And we, you know, we we're always uh, confronting others and always arguing and always trying to, to climb and, and push our opinion and our point of view. But when you're a farmer, you, you put seed into the ground and then you wish and you surrender to process. And so really the only thing that you take forward is your wish. Uh, and, and you become very clear that we're not, you're not in control, uh, and that you can only participate in, in the process of growing things. And that's, that's part of what I've brought into my adult life is, um, not trying to control everyone and everything to bend it to my will, but to, to recognize that things have their own way and their own purpose. And that, and that my role in it is to, participate uh, and to and to wish for the future for others. Yeah, I often feel that we as humans believe that we have a lot of control, yet oftentimes we, or when confronted, we are actually really surprised about how little control we actually have over what's going on, even our thoughts and our emotions. What, what do you have to say about that? And also in the time of COVID, which is a time where everyone is reflecting on how little control they actually have. Do you have a, a thought about how we can um, manage our time at this time of uncertainty? You know, the, you, the, the, last, um, the last four words you said there really sum up the, the thing that we need to face. The last four words that you said were this time of uncertainty. And the thing is, we have always lived in fundamental uncertainty. We have always lived in what you consider to be either chaos or perfection um, based on your point of view moment by moment. Uh, but we've never been in control and nothing has been assured. Uh, I remember my, uh, my uncle talking about security and talking about the future and he, he had a union job uh, in rural Alberta. And he was like, uh, he was saying, I remember him saying to me, well, the union is my future. And, and let me go down. I work, I work with, a, with the railroad and I'll take you down and I'll show you the tracks and see that right there. That's my future. I, I know that it's determined because those tracks are there. But, you know, those tracks aren't there anymore. They're, they're gone, those tracks. Um, and so does that mean his security is gone? Does that mean his future is gone? Nothing is determined 
You know, we, we don't know. We, here's, here's one thing we all know. We are all going to die at some point in time. And, and when we're born, that's kind of a certainty right now, is that at some point in time, we're all going to die. And that sounds really morose, but it's just the way it is. It's a question of when and a question of how and what will you do between now and then. So there's nothing has ever been sure. Nothing has ever been you know, preordained that it will happen. And so I find it humorous when working with schools and with institutions that they invest in building three and five-year plans um, that they're absolutely convinced about and allocating a budget five years ahead of time and mapping all of this kind of stuff out. What COVID has done is it helped, it's helped people to recognize that um, we need to be aware of what's going on now around us in every moment. Uh, and every moment is only that moment. So there's, there's always been fundamental uncertainty, uh, always. And, and, and I think that, that what this is helping us to do is to recognize that uh, and, and then to determine, well, what will we do in this moment? When we, when we live in, in those times where we're focused on the future and that three and five year plan and where we're going to be and when we're going to retire and how many bedrooms we'll have in our house and all of that kind of stuff, when our, when our focus is there, then we become really in opposition to anyone or any part of the world that does not fit in our plan, in our own really egotistical way of and self-centered way of imagining the future. So we, we've, we've made a plan and we've imagined it and we see it to be a certain way. So anything that disagrees with that becomes something that we want to fight with um, because we've already determined what is, what is going to happen. When you deal in situations like this, you, you're forced to recognize that we aren't really in control of anything except our own selves and how we choose to interact with the world and that happens moment by moment. Well, on that note, and probably a lot earlier to ask this question that I wanted to originally, but um, we're not in control. We know that. And we don't know what's going to happen. But do you have an optimistic outlook about this that we can actually grow as humans? Or do you feel like I do some days that we are on a pathway that can potentially push us towards a more negative future, one that where uncertainty and almost a lack of resources or a lack of people feeling in power, that we may go down a road where people are trying to assert their power again, whether that's through sort of tyranny, war, or um, something along those lines. I know that this is something that you're, uh, it's looking well into the future, but I've just finished reading a book on tyranny by Timothy Snyder that outlines what happened in the pre-World War One, pre-World War Two, and post-World War Two and how history seems to be repeating itself again in many parts of the world. What would you say on that? You know, um, it's a, you've asked a very difficult and very big question that's hard to answer concisely in, a, in just a moment. But I do believe, if I was to try to give you a shorter answer, um, I have no doubt that... Uh, humanity is has a, nothing but a bright future. I, I only see a bright future. Um, I don't see 
you know, the, the, I don't see road warrior happening anytime soon. And if it does, I'm not convinced that that's not the bright future. Like we don't, we don't have the wisdom to see so far um, and to understand all possibilities. I, I, we just don't. So we don't know that when something like this happens, that it doesn't, you know, we can either focus on this moment and say, well, it's terrible. But what if what came from COVID, what if what comes from, you know, 10,000 people uh, dying in one small part of Australia, you know, like what happens if from that a movement arises? What happens if it completely transforms how people choose to interact in the world and how they choose to be? What happens if we stop taking everything from the land? What happens if we create peace amongst ourselves and with our, with our fellows and with our neighbors? And I can't see that far. And no one, I think, has the wisdom to see all time and all space. So we, we judge things moment by moment. And if, if your time frame is moment by moment, if that's how you see the world is through the illusion of time, uh, which is an illusion and a construct that uh, that that our minds created for humanity is something we create to help us to make sense of the world. But if you remove time, I don't think any of us are wise enough to know what any of these things ultimately mean, and and what the end end result of them will actually be. So for me, it's it's I I'm absolutely certain that uh, that everything happens on a toward moving us towards a bright future. Uh, and it's only when we focus on ourselves and, and how it's impacting us or how it's impacting this, that we, we see that context, right? You know, I had, I, there were things that happened to me as a child and there were things that happened to everyone as a child that if you look back on in that moment, it was awful or it was bad, or in that moment, it should be judged as something that was not good or was not right. But how did all of those things contribute to the moment and the person that you are now? So how do we judge what is good and what is bad and, and what ultimately is, is an outcome? It's a great rhetorical question to ponder there. And, yeah, it makes me reflect about looking too far into the future and just living day by day, and that's my challenge. You've put much of your life and, and much of your, I guess, current view of the world based on your Zen Buddhism and, and Zen practices, as well as your journey to Japan and, and, and that, you know, quiet rural lifestyle there that helped you capture what you had in your childhood in, in Canada as well. Where did that connection to Japan and to, to Zen come from? Take us through that journey. Yeah, I really don't know where it started. I've always felt... I've always felt some connection, even as a child, when we didn't really have, you know, we didn't obviously didn't have the internet. There was not really any connection to the world except something you'd see in a movie or read in a book, right? Uh, from from a place like rural Japan or rural Canada. But there was always something there, and I, I don't know how to describe it. Then, then just something that was there that that felt felt like there was some dissatisfaction or some disconnection or something not quite right. I never quite felt like I belonged where I was. 
is is really is really kind of how I describe it. In in Canada, there's a, a, a certainly in rural Canada, there's there's a certain kind of certain way that you that you are in a certain way that you live and and some people never you know never really go that far from their home or never think outside of their own country or even their own little village or or their own their own province or their own state and i think that's the same everywhere but for me i always had this feeling that that there was more and it wasn't until i uh i was living in edmonton actually in alberta and and you know you would think of uh moving from one side of town to the other side of town you know you 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 do something like that but all of a sudden i had this realization sometime that you could throw your stuff in a car and just go like there was no fence there was you you weren't blocked from going other places and and i think it's a mindset that we get into well you know my job is here and my house is here my family is here this is you know my so my life is here you hear people say that my life is here but what is here because if you think about it we're sitting on a planet that is spinning through space at at a at a speed that we can't even comprehend and i and i don't mean the speed of the rotation of the earth but if you add to that the rotation of the earth around the sun if you add to that the sun moving in this particular galaxy in this arm of the milky way we are never in the same place ever in our lifetimes so there is no such thing as i belong here everything is in movement so it's an illusion that i'm from a specific place or that that is where i belong and it's a construct that we put in which helps to frame our thinking um when you remove those boundaries uh, you start to see other possibility and so i i always felt that there was uh some somewhere more and something else that i needed to do uh and i didn't have the feeling of really of of settled or of or of that feeling that people get of home until the first time that an airplane landed in Japan for me and i had that feeling that not that this is where i am supposed to be or where i should move here but that that i was somehow belong for a moment uh in this place and it was the first time that i ever felt that feeling that people describe as feeling at home um was the first time i landed in japan so i don't know where it came from but there was a process that led me to to be comfortable in in being a citizen of the world and in moving uh and it changes you uh working in 20 countries and working in different cultures and with different religions and different backgrounds and different curricula and different parts of the world it you you never can go back um it would i i wouldn't really fit in in where i grew up in that construct you 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 kind of don't belong anymore in those places and so i also don't belong in japan uh i'm i'm a foreigner here and that doesn't mean that i'm not welcome i'm treated so so wonderfully here in every aspect people are so generous and kind but i don't really belong here and i also spend a great deal of time in australia i used to when you used to be able to get on planes so you know there's a part of me that belongs so i i'm where where do i belong is a is a interesting question for us to ponder so that when you start to remove those constructs it really doesn't matter whether i'm in canada or japan or if i'm in dubai or australia it's a, it's more of a question of how do i choose to be where i am in this moment because where i am is constantly 
constantly changing. There is no, there is no, never in the same place for more than a, an instant. I think belonging is often seen as a, a positive and as a something to to strive for, but in many cases it is limiting. And and you sort of describe that that the fact is that we are as humans, we are global. We are everyone, not just our village, not just our town, just not just our nationality, which actually causes issues at times as well. You know that sort of tribalism factor. So do you think the fact that you've lost that belonging has actually opened up? many more new pathways than you'd ever have imagined if you had stayed in Edmonton. Obviously it has, you're working in 20 countries, you know, you're well known across the world in this field and you've, and you've developed yourself, you've, you've found new ways to be, but do you think that the idea of belonging needs to be removed from just strictly the positive connotations to actually say, no, no, we can belong in a much broader context than just our town? I don't like to label I struggle to label something as either good or bad, right? In the same way that I said, you know, when we look at time, uh, it's difficult for us to judge something that happens in a specific moment. There is nothing wrong with belonging and there's nothing right with belonging. It's, it's just what is. And so in every moment, in every context, it's different for everyone as far as, as, as that goes. But I encourage people to think about what it means rather than what it is, if, if, that makes, if that makes sense. So what does it mean to belong is something that I would examine and constantly challenge what it, what it means. What, and what is that group? You know, when we, in the practice of Zen and, and in Japan, we say, um, we say, before we eat, we say, itadakimasu, is, is like um, a, a blessing almost that we say before we eat. But it really has to do with a reverence for all things. So uh, this is a tangential answer to your question because it, it really is a it, it really is about belonging. Um, one of the things in Buddhism is that one of the one of the principles in Buddhism people talk about in the in the fifteen the fifteen precepts is not to kill. And people think, well, what does that mean? Well, that means not killing a human being. And then other people say, well, it means not killing a sentient being. So, and then other people say, well, no, it means not killing an animal. Uh, so you get these different perspectives on something like this, right? Or maybe it just means not to kill people that don't annoy you. Like, what, like I don't know what, like everyone's going to have their own view on this, right? And so we look at it a little, a little differently. It's not about whether you're vegetarian or whether you're, whether you're not vegetarian, um, that whole aspect. And this, I promise you, this is getting to belonging. But if I'm going to eat rice, do I have the awareness and the reverence, that there were all kinds of what you'd call, um, what do you call them, mini-beasts in Australia, where there are all kinds of mini-beasts. Uh, there were all kinds of microorganisms. There was all kinds of life that was consumed in the production of that grain of rice. Can I have the awareness to recognize that life is life and that all of it was involved? And so how do I not kill becomes impossible if you look at it from the perspective of everything, everything mattering. So in the same way, it's about belonging. Do, does just my group matter? Does, is it just the people that follow my footy team? Is it, is it or just my city or just my country 
or is it just my planet or is it all beings and and that's really ultimately what belonging is about is recognizing that there is no separation between you and I that there is no there is no separation between myself and and the ground there we're ju- it's just one and and so there is no good or or bad or or border or boundary or 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 sect it's just it's just we're all part of one thing that's much bigger than than the importance that we place on ourselves through my own really modest and and early work in in meditation and and trying to focus on on what you're talking about that focus but with a lack of focus you know that we're, we're paying attention to the fact that millions and millions of things are hitting us at once both from within and from without but that it is all linked and it is all and, and then you sort of start challenging what is within and what is without and what is up and what is down and and that has hit me in really small microsecond fragments where I've I felt it and then it dissipates and then I go back to seeing me as a separate being to to everything else in your practice in Zen Buddhism what changes did you notice early on and and first of all how did you get into zen what were the changes you found early on and then how have you now been able to continue to live your life with an understanding of those lessons you've learned to continually go back to those lessons rather than fall back into the traps that we often tend to fall back in especially if you're a teacher you know you hear something great and then you go back to the same old ways of teaching if you're in a city you know you go on holidays, you say, I'm going to change everything. I've just gone to Nepal and been up the Himalayas and then you go back to the rat race, beeping people on the streets. How did you allow your practice to cement itself within you? Well, I, firstly, I would, I would say that I, I, I haven't. Um, you know, I, I've in no means uh, achieved any level of perfection. Uh, it's a constant process. It's moment by moment. And so again it comes back to the question and the, and the perception of time, right? So I was this, then I studied that, but now I've gone back to that. Um, now I've gone back. Now I'm doing it that way again, right? No, in this moment, you're doing that. And then in the next moment, you'll do that. It, but what are you doing now? Are you aware of, of it? It's moment by moment. Um, and so it's the same for the practice. There are there are times that uh, that I have a, um, a focus that is different to other times. Um, there's times that I have confidence, uh, times that I have an understanding. Sometimes times I have peace. Sometimes that I don't. It's moment by moment, and that comes from ego. So ego is the is not we we say uh, we say ego in in Zen practice. It's not. Um, pride it's uh the presence of the self asserting itself it's our thoughts our perceptions our uh ways of trying to cling on to what's right or what's true or mine versus yours and if you think about the if you recognize the thousands of thoughts that go on in your mind in a day uh that are constantly constantly feeding your direction Sometimes those thoughts uh, grab us and take hold of us. Sometimes they grab us in a way of, uh, of us thinking about things that they should be this way. 
it should be that way. Well, why is he doing that? Or why did they do this? Or, well, that's not right. And we start to cling to that idea. And that idea is ego, where we start to, and, and usually it's external. Normally it comes with uh, judgment and it comes with blame. It's either us saying something external is wrong or someone external is not doing what they should. Uh, and so we, we move to blame, which allows us to be victim, uh, which allows us to be right and to justify and then to tell ourselves how good we are. And that's, that is the struggle of ego. When people talk about karma, uh, we don't understand what that means. It's not, I did something in my other life and I have to pay for it now. It's nothing like that. Karma is the pattern of a heart, the pattern of how you do things and how you, how you are. It's the pattern of your heart in certain circumstances that you repeat yourself over and over and over again. Breaking karma means breaking that chain of thought. It means, it means not allowing that thought to take hold and to choose different, a different possibility. And that's how you break that cycle. This whole process that, you, that you're asking me about is about attachment. And so where it first started for me was um, you know, my, my father passed away when I was 16. And so by the, time I was, by the time I was 17, I was living on my own, actually. And there, were, there was this idea about um, stuff, I guess is the way to put it, family heirlooms. And there came a point when the burden of those things, because I, I recognized that it was most likely that I was not going to have children. I thought, well, why, what is all this stuff? And who is it for? And why does that matter? And that's a very confronting heavy feeling, right? So even as a person who's a, like, I'm an author of, you know, I've written 11 books, I've talked to hundreds of thousands of people. If I allowed my ego to go down the road of looking for a legacy or looking for mattering, or when I'm gone, what will, will they build a monument or how many people will come to my funeral? Uh, this is attachment to some idea of self that is really, truly meaningless. The question is not, how will I be remembered? The question is, what do I do in this moment that I've been given? This time that you and I have, Matthew, together, if you think about all the things, all the miracles that had to happen in your life and in my life and in the life of the entire world of everyone, for us to have this moment together, it's unbelievable that we have an hour to have this conversation. What a gift. So I could be thinking about, you know, the meetings and the other things that I have to do or the you know, things that come next. Or I can really just be grateful that I have this moment and just be here for this time rather than squandering. And, and that's, that's what led me to the practice is the idea of attachment and the attachment to the future and the attachment to the past and that none of it really makes sense when the future is made up of moments that are now. And the past is a culmination of those moments. So if we're going to live looking at the past, what we do is we take that past and we 
focus on that and we put that into our future because that becomes our practice it becomes our meditation that's what karma is is continually bringing the past and bringing it into the future and well they should have and i should have and that should have and i used to do this and then i went to the mountain now i'm back and i'm doing it again and so now i'm more judgment and more blame as opposed to just what's happening in this moment and let's just be here and 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 then ask what do we want to do with the next moment and just just continue that way and at those moments it's almost that begin again moment where you you just have to center yourself and and decide once again to to let everything go is that something that that you are able to do at times that often you wish that everyone was able just to begin again, but people do hold those. And, and this is once again, judging, <laughs> and I'm not trying to judge or, or put, you know, everyone's got their experiences, but the fact is if we were able to begin again, when we're at that moment where we can allow anger to fester or a grudge to start to grow, or even, you know, self-worth starts to diminish. If we are able to begin again and breathe, we do realise that there is strength in that and and also opportunity and possibility for a much better next moment. Yeah, it's really, you just have to... You have to be aware of the of the current moment uh, and and start to value it. And when you start to value the current moment, you start to value all life and all things and all all circumstances. And nothing is seen as a waste of time. Nothing is seen as an inconvenience. It's 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 really an unlimited possibility at every moment. You and I don't know from this conversation. You know, maybe. Maybe this conversation will be uh, heard by millions of people and maybe it'll change the whole world or maybe it'll do nothing. We don't know. Neither of them matters. But what matters is that if I'm going to talk to you, that, that I'm completely here and that I do my best to lift you up as a, as a human being and, and not to make this conversation about, about me, but to make it about something bigger and more important. That, that cycle of of finding that, um, that center in Zen happens through a couple of different means, but the primary driver of that is Zazen, the, the sitting meditation, the sitting practice, which in the, in the, in the West, we talk about mindfulness and it's, it's, um, it's something that I struggle with because I, to me, it's often what we do is what I would call mic mindfulness, right? It's like the, we've, we've kind of grabbed the little essence of the, of the practice and said, Oh, that's good. I, I feel comfortable sitting and, and, and doing that. Um, and then missing what the whole thing is about. And I, I really wish for people to experience a deeper sense of, of what that practice is. But in Zazen, it's constantly about being aware of, that moment of being aware of that thought and of allowing it to just kind of disappear. And when we allow that to happen, when we don't say attached, fixed to those thoughts, then we can start to sense something that's different and something that's real and that's our true self and our, and our true nature. And, and the fact that we're all connected, you know, there's a moment that happens in breathing, for example, a lot of times in Zazen, we focus on our breath. When you come to the recognition that the breath that is in your lungs is the same air that's everywhere, and that there actually is no me and them, there is only us together, that it's all just one. That only happens through calming that 
the mind that wants to control everything. And uh, zazen sometimes, especially like when you're in a monastery training, it's not easy work. You know, there's a there's a, a week that happens called session that I that I have not been able to make through completely yet because of the physical stamina that it takes to be a monk. Let me tell you, but um, that starts at three in the morning and um, continues between either weeding and cleaning a garden. You know, the beautiful Japanese gardens they're beautiful for a reason. It's because someone is very mindfully picking pine needles out of moss one at a time. And that's the work of a monk. And being present to that uh, in that moment is mindfulness practice and sitting zazen and the way that we eat and everything. And it goes on 21 hours a day. Uh, there's no rest and no stop. And monks live like that in Zen monasteries here for five, seven years, or sometimes their whole life, uh, devoted to just doing that work for others to see what, what dedication to eliminating the self looks like. It starts with zazen, and some people can do three minutes or five minutes, and I just encourage people to not judge, well, a monk does it 15 hours a day or 21 hours a day, but just to stop any moment. The, the great roshis here, the great Zen masters in Kamakura and in, in, uh, and in Kyoto will tell you that it's not about how long. Uh, it's, it's about do you do or not do. And so... Even just the breath that you take when you're standing in line at the supermarket or the moment that you take before you get on a phone call or the, the moment that you take in pause and reflection before you answer your spouse or talk to your children, that, that is the practice of finding moment and, and moving forward without karma. So it, yes, it's, it's in that breath of every moment, Matthew. During our conversation at the school, during your TED Talk, you had a, a couple of ways to bring people back to that moment and to almost test themselves in a way, you know, the, the squeezing of the thumbs, doing little tasks where we had to try to connect dots, you know, using one line and that we had to think outside the square. These sort of activities, is there something that you can think of that's short and for people at home to be able to do when they're just listening to this, is there something that you can help us all actually think through action right now? Yeah. Um, are you breathing? Are you breathing, Matthew? I definitely am. So do you always breathe? Uh, if you count the, the pauses between breaths as breathing, then yes. So you're always, you're always breathing, right? Are you aware that you're always breathing? No. Right. But you know intellectually that you are always breathing. Are you aware right now that you're breathing? Yes. Right. So it's the same for the mind. The mind is always thinking. We're not always aware that the mind is always thinking and the mind is always talking to us. And we call it monkey mind in Zazen. It's like in Zen, like a monkey jumping from branch to branch to branch all over the place. Monkey mind is always happening. Are we aware of it? No. But from time to time, we're aware that we're thinking. And then from time to time, we concentrate on our thinking. It's pretty tough for us to stop breathing for any period of time. Something's going to give if we try to stop breathing. So a wonderful thing to do is to focus on that breathing. And 
in zazen, the way that we approach it, the or kind of the early way that we we do this is is through counting. And it, if you play a little game with yourself, if you're just aware of your breath, just once you start being aware of your breath, it's hard to hard to go back to not noticing that it's happening because you're aware of it. But try to take a breath and not don't focus on the breath in, focus on the breath out. And when you get to the end of your breath out, just imagine that someone is just gently pushing on your back the way that you'd help an older person to kind of move up a hill, you know, just to push that little bit extra breath out and count one and be thankful. So the way that we do that, we breathe out and in Japanese, we hito. Let breath come in. Don't focus on the breath in because we, you know, and then it's all about, it's too tight. Focus on the breath out and see if you can make it to 10 without having some other thought of some other thing of your discomfort or, or what's for lunch or uh, what happened at school or, you know, what was that sound? Um, see if you can make it to 10 and have a sense of humor and do it like a game. And when you recognize that you've had some other thought, then and go back and start again at one. And you'll find that if you, if you do that, you will become very, very aware of your mind. You'll become very aware of your body. You'll become very aware of everything around you. So just focus on the breath, be aware of the breath. And through that, you'll be aware of the mind. And then through that, you'll learn to start to not cling to those thoughts, but to let them move like a leaf that's fallen onto a river. You know, it'll float there, but it'll just float away. Don't stay fixed on it, but let it move. And, and that's, that is the basic practice of Sazen. Oh, thank you. Now that's um, lovely and a, and a great introduction to, to that idea and that, that the idea of monkey mind and how active our minds actually are and how little we realize. This is a really important time in history right now. It's the 75th anniversary of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki atomic bomb blast that, you know, destroyed so much and killed so many people. And I know you have a strong connection to, I guess, this time through some of your work. Can you talk about that flame that you, that you were able to, to bring across the world from Japan and a little bit of a reflection about what we should learn maybe 75 years on from that event? Yeah, there's, you know, the, in Hiroshima, they've, uh, they've, they've kept the, the flame from the atomic bomb burning. And, and the same thing has happened in, in Nagasaki. And, you know, that that flame is still there. And gosh, it's, um, there's, we can either look to the past and there's a there's a balance in this, right? There's a there's always going to be um, things that have happened. There's always going to be wars that have happened. You know, we can go back and look at the Cathars and what happened in the south of France. Um, and most people don't know about that history. Uh, you know, where an entire an entire civilization was wiped out in two valleys in uh, in, a, in a period uh, of a, of a few days. 
most people don't know that story. It, it's really easy for us to go back and to look at history and to say, well, that was awful and that should never happen again. And no, it shouldn't. But the, the, the question is not what happened, but the question is, what will you be? So in every moment, we have a choice. And if, if, if remembering Hiroshima allows you to live a different life or to be a different way, then please remember uh, and, and please find a way to, to, to carry forward in the world and, and use that to inform who you are. That's, that's what I would say about, about how we approach those things is, um, is, is always with some sense of humility. But I, I get very uncomfortable when we, when we want to remember and we want to, we want to say, you know, and shake our fist because it comes back to, it comes back to blame and it comes back to finding something external that, that we want to use as uh, the cause of our own suffering, not recognizing that the cause of our own suffering has more to do with clinging to our own ideas and jumping from branch to branch with a monkey mind. So if you were to visit Hiroshima and you were to visit Nagasaki and you were to, to meet people who are second and third generation survivors uh, from, from Hiroshima, you would find that there is actually a peace that they carry within them and a humility and a wish for the world that has nothing to do with, with remembering as an anniversary, but just with how they choose to be in that moment. And, and that's ultimately what this life is about, is, is, is finding a way to, to be one and to have compassion and, and to move forward in serving, serving us all and serving each other as something bigger than ourselves. On that, I was in, in Japan last year and or might have been the year before now, and I was in Hiroshima and, and was there and there were these volunteer tour guides that would tell you all about uh, what, what happened. And they were just so, as you said, it wasn't about remembering in a, in a really sad way. It was about telling the story of what happened and how things have rebuilt and how people have, have come together and, and, you know, learned from it and kept that in their heart, that flame, that eternal flame. And there was actually an old bank that I entered just randomly that had, was, I realized was still standing from the original blast. All the wood inside had been destroyed, but the actual building was still there. And you went down into the underground area where they actually had the vault. And in that vault were about 50 pictures of people that drew pictures of their memory of what happened. So the horse on fire, the people dying, people jumping in the, in the little baths just to try to survive and the horrible images. But then it was a recollection from that. And it was all about not that victimhood, but about what's next, where, what lessons, not only what lessons can we learn, but also how can I that experienced this be better, but also how can you that is seeing my experience, how can you be better? And then upstairs, went back upstairs and a piano that had survived that blast was being about to be played by different uh, Japanese artists and musicians. And, and basically for the next couple of hours, I watched this piano that had survived that blast be played. And this was all by chance and all by luck. And it was one of the most amazing experiences of my life that I was able to, to be there for that in what seemed like a, quite a, um, 
I guess, almost an invitational event, but I somehow ended up there. And and that is, yeah, I, I think something that you reminded me of with that description and that it was not just about the memory and the history, but about, you know, playing that piano, you know, that piano survived, so let's play it. There's a there's a bigger realization for for us in all of that there's so much opportunity in in every moment you know there's a friend of mine uh a zen who's a zen abbot in uh in in a little community not far from not far from uh kamakura in, in kind of a rural area of yokohama and uh he was telling me about um what's happening in his neighborhood and kind of the, some of the things that are going on there and you know, we were, what we were talking about, and a lot of people don't recognize this, but with with COVID, for example, uh, lots of lots of people are, have lost their jobs, of course, right? Well, in Japan, there's uh, a lot of single mothers, and um, most of the work that they would do would be part-time work, and not very well-paid part-time work either, you know. But they were the first people to go, uh, first people to go from most companies. So you have single mothers with kids who basically are living in poverty and not even eating themselves just to make sure their kids eat and not talking about it in a, in any significant way. And so part of what this gentleman is doing, doing this, this monk is doing this friend of mine is, um, is just buying groceries and just going down and buying bags of rice. And um, he knows who the single mothers are in the 10 block radius around him and just randomly, coming just to say hello and uh, brought a bag of groceries and that's it. Um, no, no comment, no, um, nothing on the news, uh, just being responsible in some humble way for the people around you. And we very much like to um, focus on the other side of the world. Right. Um, and, and you know, I'll, I'll give some money to to this, or I'll, I'll donate to that. But there is a difference between service and charity, and and charity is about collecting change, but service is about actually giving of of your heart. And so, the one thought I would really like to leave leave you with from this whole conversation is for us all to reflect on. What space can you find in your heart for the suffering of another human being? And then to, to do something with, with that space. And it, it's not about being able to be proud. It's um, just recognizing that in your own community, in your own family, in your own life, that people are suffering in the same way that you do. And just take a moment to find a little space there for one person and see see what happens then with your life. Oh, thank you. And and this podcast is called Moments of Clarity, and I think you've provided us a reflection for us to find our own moment of clarity there. Have you personally had a moment of clarity recently that you'd like to share with us? Moment of clarity recently. Gosh, there's you know there's so many. I'm I'm constantly recognizing uh, my need to my need to shift and my need to focus on on doing things differently. Yeah, they happen. They happen all the and every moment of every day is like a moment of clarity for me. So it's hard for me to pin down just one Matthew. 
but uh, speaking with a monk friend of mine and, and recognizing his, his absolute humility and lack of self-interest really reminded me and challenged me to think about how much of what I do in my work or in my life still has an attachment of self-interest and how much of it is truly because I see something that needs to be done and I, and I, and I do it without judgment, without someone should be helping though. Well, that shouldn't be so without I'll feel better if I do without any of that, but to just purely, purely do when I saw the humility and in, in how he was approaching things and the, and the complete lack of self-interest in what he was doing, uh, it really challenged me to reflect on, on whether or not I really purely have, have as much pure intent in my actions in every moment. Oh, brilliant. Thank you so much for that. And, and, and thank you for this uh, time. And it's been an absolute pleasure for me to be able to talk to you about something a little different than I hear often, uh, you know, about education and schooling. And um, I will lead everyone to, to that area of what you do and, and introduce you and what you do as well. But um, it was a great pleasure to listen to what you have to teach us on a, on a more personal level. So thank you. Uh, thank you. It's my great pleasure. I appreciate that time together. If you enjoyed the conversation today, please subscribe, share with your friends and family, and leave a review. If you would like to contact me, provide feedback, or have access to someone you believe could be a great guest on the podcast, you can contact me on Instagram or Facebook at Moments of Clarity Podcast, or on Twitter at BarneyMOC. You can also email me on Moments of Clarity Podcast at gmail.com. My name is Barney, and thank you for joining me on Moments of Clarity.